Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The ever-evolving landscape of business, finance, entertainment, and even medicine is often shaped by both technological advancements and cultural changes. However, it's often the case that those in power, as those changes are happening, resist such changes and try to maintain their grip on the power of the status quo. This is especially true if family is involved. This is exemplified by the TV show Succession and some of the books by James B. Stewart, including Disney Wars, Den of Thieves, Deep State, Tangled Webs, and Bloodsport. The pandemic was a transformational event for the entertainment business. The Me Too movement was also a catalyst for change, with Harvey Weinstein as its poster child. Additionally, the theatrical movie business was also under pressure from the ongoing streaming wars, which have altered the fabric of Hollywood. All of these forces come together in the story of Sumner Redstone and his family and his mistresses. Redstone, a one-time movie theater magnate and owner of Paramount, Viacom, CBS, and Simon & Schuster, into his 90s was surrounded by hangers-on, adversaries, and family members, as well as a group of women whose experiences highlighted the worst of Hollywood, even in modern times. Add to this the very worst of corporate governance, and you have the story that my guests James B. Stewart and Rachel Abrams tell in Unscripted. James B. Stewart is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and best-selling author. He's written extensively on topics of business, Hollywood, and finance. And Rachel Abrams is a former media reporter for the New York Times and currently senior producer and reporter for the New York Times Presents. She was part of the Pulitzer Prize-winning team that exposed sexual harassment and misconduct. Together, they've given us Unscripted, the epic battle for a media empire and the Redstone family legacy. It is my pleasure to welcome Rachel Abrams here for the first time and James B. Stewart back to this program. James, Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you here. James, you've covered a lot of bad people over the years, people like Mike Milken and Madoff (laughs) and Boski, and and, and the list goes on, even a serial killer doctor. How does Sumner Redstone rate in this pantheon of venality? Well, nobody's going to top the serial killer doctor on that score. But um, Sumner Redstone, you know, who was immensely powerful and wealthy, was also a ruthless, driven competitor. Um, You know, he we didn't uncover any crimes here. And this isn't criminal behavior, but it's eye popping behavior nonetheless. Everywhere from the way he he treated women, um, not only the women that very late in life he insisted on dating, but uh, his own daughter. And I think one thing we discovered, you know, and Rachel and I have talked about a lot is, you know, yes, this is a business story. Yes, it's a Me Too story. But it's ultimately it's a family drama. It's about the relationship of a hyper competitive father and his daughter who really just wanted to earn his affection and love and spend her life life trying to get it. Rachel, we see Redstone in this story really at the twilight of his life. Talk a little bit about how he got the way he was, but more specifically, was he always this ruthless, this venal, this misogynistic towards women? Sumner Redstone was known as being ruthless in business and obviously deeply competitive, both in his personal and professional life. 
And, um, and one of the really defining stories of Sumner Redstone's life was a fire at the Copley, um, at a Copley Hotel uh, where he was staying with his uh, mistress at the time. And a fire breaks out and he climbs out the window and hangs on for dear life with one hand that gets badly burned in the fire. And yet he manages to hang on until he's able to be rescued. Um, and this, this, this event scarred his hand for life. It was kind of a bit like a claw almost. Um, and Sumner often used this story to show that he could survive anything. He was invincible. And he only half joked that he, could, he would live forever and, and, and use that line to not have to just sort of wave away any kind of attempted succession planning. Um, so, you know, he was he always so driven and ruthless? You know, it's hard to say, but certainly there were moments that you could really look at and say uh, that was really defining and, and, and very formative for him. And what about James, his relationship with women? Were they always as, as unpleasant as some of the stories that we see in Unscripted? Well, he was married for many years, although he was uh, unfaithful almost from from the beginning. And eventually he divorced his his longtime wife, uh, Phyllis, who was, I believe, the stabilizing influence. And then he really kind of went off the deep end when it came to women and dating. You know, he he arrived in Hollywood as a billionaire mogul when he was in his mid 70s, uh, which did not stop him from, you know, dating and not only dating, but showering money on these women and creating TV shows for them on MTV or getting them on the CBS television network, all of which he had the power to do, although he shouldn't have been exercising it. He even went so far as to try to steal his grandson's girlfriend who were, who were out there, uh, which ultimately led um, to the family kind of reaching out to the millionaire matchmaker to set him up with someone else. And then that got him into deeper trouble. And you see, Really, the catalyst for this whole story was his sort of ill-fated relationship with uh, with women and two women in particular who moved into the mansion uh, in Beverly Hills with him. And as his own mental state and health declined as he aged, they seized control. They isolated from his family. They worked their way into his will, his trust funds. And they walked away, we calculate, with over $150 million of his money. One of the things that that I think is so remarkable about this story, and I'd like you both to comment on it, Rachel, start with you, is how hollow everybody is around Redstone, with the exception of, of Sherry Redstone, who we'll talk about. It is just remarkable how everybody caves into him. One of the things that we found kind of the most shocking, if not surprising, was that for all of his wealth and power, uh, Sumner Redstone did not have guardrails around him that prevented people, grifters, uh, users from getting in and siphoning off money from him. And these women that Jim mentioned that moved into the mansion with him, they weren't just siphoning off money, but they were arguably committing they were committing elder abuse and isolating him from his family, telling his telling him that his children didn't love him, that they didn't want to see him. And one of the big takeaways from this book is that you know money really doesn't buy you happiness, and if if ever that was true, it is it is certainly true here. Yeah, I mean, you know, you asked earlier, what, you know, how bad a person was Sumner Redstone, and <laughs> you know, in some ways, he he had some pretty reprehensible characteristics, and and he was kind of self-aware. I mean, he confided in one of his many girlfriends that the reason he kept saying he was never going to die is that he knew if when he did die, and he you know faced his maker that he was going to be subject to a very harsh judgment. 
And yet you see his situation late in life where, you know, as Rachel pointed out, he's deteriorating. He is surrounded by people who care more about his money and power and gaining access to it than they do about him. And it's a very sad situation. I mean, you can I mean, I found myself wondering at times whatever he did in his in his life. And some of it was certainly you know, pretty despicable. Did he deserve that late in life? Does anyone deserve that kind of treatment? You know, I think readers can make up their own minds, but it's certainly, as Rachel said, clear that having all that money, not only did it not bring him happiness, it might have made things worse for him. It's interesting you talk about the guardrails because it was, wasn't only the women that took advantage, but also people like Les Moonves and, and Philippe Dumont. Absolutely. The people around him were all too happy to just sort of watch a lot of this unfold so long as it benefited him. And you see that, you know, if it suited some of the sycophants and and hangers on to argue that he was incompetent, that's what happened. And if it suited people to argue that he was competent, uh, that's what they did. Um, And there were very few people really besides his daughter who he abused looking out for his best interest. Um, And, you know, that's why you mentioned that there there aren't a lot of like, I guess, good characters in this book, or admirable characters in this book, Harry Redstone sort of comes off as, as the real hero here, as the, the daughter that always yearned for her father's love and affection, even though he withheld it for, for, for her entire life. Yeah, it's not just the women who took advantage of him financially. I mean, Philippe Dumont and Les Moonves were two of the highest paid executives in the world, in, in America. And you know, the last year he was at CBS, um, Les Moonves uh, made $70 million in, in compensation. And this was kind of routine there. I mean, they they walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars between them. And nobody was really controlling that. They, Sumner let them, you know, run these enter, giant enterprises as they saw fit. And they were determined to keep the money flowing and, and to maintain their power. Did he let them do this because he didn't know what they were doing or because he just didn't care for whatever reason? Well, you know, it's we can't really go into his mind, particularly in his, in his later years. But there's no question that he was, um, as many elderly people do, you know, he, he was not at his prime in those late years. Certainly, uh, he was physically impaired. He, he had great difficulty even speaking or communicating and his mental state was, you know, a shadow of what he once was. So he was he was very vulnerable. And um, even though, again, one of the shocking things we show is that the boards of these publicly traded companies are paying him tens of millions of dollars to be the chairman of the companies. He was not really in any way functioning any kind of check on what was going on there. I don't think he had the capacity to exercise any control over these chief executives. Rachel, talk about the board, because that just further accentuates this idea of of all the hollow characters that surround this guy. Well, Les Moonves was surrounded by loyalists on the board, and you were talking about mostly white men who were very, very quick to believe the worst rumors about Sherry Redstone and were very quick to dismiss the credible accusations about Les Moonves and his behavior with women that really should have given them pause and they they really should have investigated thoroughly given that these accusations were coming out at the height of the Me Too movement where powerful men in media and beyond were being uh, being being ousted from companies be, be over their, their behavior with women. And instead, 
the board basically didn't do anything. I mean, their so-called investigation was a farce. They essentially just asked Moonves if he had behaved badly and took him at his word when he said that there was nothing to worry about. And it really, you know, it really it speaks to the mindset of the people running this company. I mean, Jim reported, you know, in the Times early on in this process that one of the board members, in response to accusations, serious accusations of misconduct, responded that, well, we all did that. And and frankly, it wasn't until uh, a, a doctor, a female doctor accused Moonves of misconduct, um, that people really started taking this more seriously and and did not. But they were already quick to dismiss, you know, 12 other women who had come forward against him. And yet even the doctor wasn't enough for them to, to really move on this. So it really goes to show you the sort of sexist, male dominated environment that Sherry Redstone was up against. Yeah, we were really shocked by this because we got the text, the emails, the notes of the meetings. So you, you can kind of be a fly on the wall um, hearing what they're saying. Of course, they didn't know that this would ever become public. But the level of sexism and the way they dismissed these serious allegations is shocking. We, you know, we got an email from one CBS director to the board saying, I don't care if 100 more women come forward accusing Les Moonves. He's our leader and we're going to stand behind him. That was the attitude they were doing. And as, as Rachel pointed out, this is after the Me Too movement was in full swing, and yet they were still writing and saying things like this. They were certainly deep tentacles that, that both members of the company, the various companies had, and even that the board had, into the various aspects of the entertainment industry. What was known about what was going on here, and, and to what extent did it matter to anyone else in the industry? Well, I don't think hardly any of this was actually known. I mean, the, for insiders, uh, the attitude that, that the entertainment and, and Hollywood was pretty much a, a men's uh, club was, was not a surprise. But I think for anybody else, it's going to be pretty startling at the degree to which that industry was dominated by a handful of aging very uh, sexist and very entitled people who, with the perks of power and being surrounded by celebrities and stars and, and, and beautiful women, felt they could you know, do anything, that there were no, no constraints. I mean, the, the, the behavior really is pretty startling. I mean, the idea that, that money and that kind of power enabled you to do whatever you wanted and treat people however you wanted, uh, I think is pretty appalling. And, I, and I, I don't think anybody knew to the extent that this was really going on. Was there a sense, Rachel, that this was sort of the penultimate situation of the old Hollywood, that this this seems somehow to represent everything that was bad and it was, was really the, the apogee of it in so many respects? That's exactly right. I mean, Sumner Redstone is really was among the last of the media moguls, the true media moguls. And he the behavior that he was, by the way, well known for, you know, the bullying, the the treatment of women. Um, that's not stuff that we would expect people at the, certainly not the heads of public companies to be able to get away with. But, you know, in terms of what was known about this, uh, this book obviously includes a lot of new revelations. But some and we detail Sumner's treatment of women, um, including an accusation from a, a flight attendant um, that he basically lunged at her in the back of a car. But people around him, much like, for example, Harvey Weinstein, knew that generally his treatment of women was was not good and, and knew about his appetites with women and knew that his girlfriends interfered often with the company, uh, the company business. And there's this great story in the book about him uh, at an event 
We're next standing next to a woman in a very revealing dress with stiletto heels. Uh, um, uh, and a reporter turns to the head of communications for Viacom and says, who is that? And these are like big Lucite heels, I should say. And the head of comms turns to the reporter and says with a straight face, that's his home health care aide. So, you know, people around him knew about some of his extracurricular activities and knew that it was, uh, you know, in some ways getting, you know, involved with the business. Some of these girlfriends got TV shows and stock options and all kinds of all kinds of things. James, talk about Sherry Redstone and the degree to which she really is the hero of this story, or does she just look better compared to everybody else? You know, Sherry um, is a fascinating character. You know, as Rachel mentioned, on, on the broadest level, this is a relationship between a very complicated and demanding father and a daughter. And, you know, father-daughter relationships aren't something that we see explored all that often, especially in the nonfiction uh, arena. But she was a, a reluctant participant here. I mean, the, the, her brother, we haven't mentioned, but Sumner drove him away early on. He, he left completely, didn't speak to his father, didn't even show up at his funeral. Um, Sherry was left to sort of, you know, maintain the family legacy, and, but she didn't want to be involved in it. She could avoid it. But once these women were installed in the mansion and were slowly but surely seizing control of Sumner's wealth and his businesses, she felt she had no choice but to intervene for his sake, and, you know, as, as well as at the request of, you know, nurses and staff who witnessed what was going on out there. So she didn't really want to do it. And then she got drawn in and, you know, you have to hand it to her through sheer perseverance and determination. She, you know, confronted one uh, obstacle after another. The women, she got them out. Then she had to deal with the, you know, the head of Viacom. She got him out. And then she then she thought she had her ally in Les Moonves. And then he betrayed her and stabbed her in the back. And she had to deal with that. I think, you know, there is a lot to admire in her. And I think women particularly who you know, have faced outrageous discrimination, you know, both in their families and in the workplace can draw some inspiration from that. Rachel, talk about what happened with Moonves and, and Sherry, because in some ways it could have been a powerful alliance. But as James said, he turned on her. Talk about that. The, Sherry thought that Moonves was her friend and Moonves thought that Sherry was meddling. So he pretended to go along with some of her plans to merge CBS and Viacom. But behind her back, he was plotting with other board members to launch basically what amounted to a coup to to file a lawsuit that would seek to strip Sherry Redstone's control of her own family business. And going back to what we were talking a little bit about earlier, you know, people tend to think of business books as being strictly about business. But businesses are obviously run by people, and they're they're inherently stories about people and flawed people. And in this book, you really see the the hubris, the entitlement, the arrogance that would um, that would cause people to act in the way that they do in this book. Um, and one of the really enduring mysteries is why would Les Moonves, at the height of the Me Too movement, when he knows that there are accusations against him lurking in the sh- in the background, threatening to become public? Why on earth he would have launched this kind of litigation, knowing that these accusations could ultimately do do him in, that is a real mystery here. But as Jim said, all the texts, all the emails, all the documentation that we were able to get really paint a picture of a company dealing with a meet-through crisis in real time and allows you to really see behind the scenes of how they're reacting. Is there anything, James, that, that Moonves could have done that might have changed the outcome of all of this for him? 
Oh, definitely. Um, I think, you know, again, the mystery of his, uh, you know, betrayal of Sherry, he just did not trust her. You know, I, th- I think she was genuine. She wanted to work with him, be a partner to him. Um, if he had accepted that, at least, you know, I think there could possibly have been a different outcome. Or to me, the obvious solution, he was, you know, 70. He was, you know, getting up there. Uh, he could have gracefully said, look, Sherry, you want to, you know, pursue this merger or whatever. I don't think I'm the person to take on that particular challenge. So why don't I just retire? He would have been hailed as one of the great entertainment executives in Hollywood history. And again, if he was out of power, he could have left with his hundreds of millions of dollars of severance pay and a fortune that he could never spend in his remaining lifetime. I don't I think there's a good chance that, you know, nobody would have cared about these long ago Me Too allegations if he, in fact, was no longer wielding power. In fact, one of the things that you point out in the book is that it was not Sherry Redstone that brought down Les Moonves. There was speculation for a long time that it was Sherry Redstone that provided Ronan Farrow with the information about these women. And in fact, you argue in the book that it was not her at all. No, that's right. Um, it, what what was so interesting about this is a lot of people thought that, that the, the accusations from, as we mentioned, a dozen women in The New Yorker uh, were what ultimately did Les Moonves in. But as we reveal in the book in detail, in, in great detail, um, it was actually Moonves's attempt to, to keep one different woman silent uh, that really did him in. And basically his 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 vulnerability to blackmail uh, essentially from this woman's manager who wanted acting roles and parts in exchange for this woman's silence it was that vulnerability that led to his ousting from the company and it's really hard frankly to think of uh, any any media titan on the level of moonves or redstone whose uh, who who whose sexual appetite misconduct uh, and and just act general activity with women um, or in, in romantic relationships affected, you know, business on this scale. Yeah, you know, so many people alleged to us that Sherry was the one behind all these allegations, that she got, the, she found these women, she coaxed them out. She like laid this whole story uh, on Ronan Farrow, the reporter at The New Yorker who wrote about it, which by the way, does a disservice to Ronan Farrow. And so we spent a tremendous amount of time reconstructing exactly what, how these women happened to come forward and Sherry vehemently denied that she had anything to do with it. And we confirmed that. We independently found out how these women surfaced. It was another example of the CBS board and people who were friendly to Moonves believing anything Moonves said, including these bad things about Sherry, when the, the facts absolutely did not support that. Do you have a sense, either one of you, of, of why Moonves, who was an effective executive for so long, and, and reasonably a smart guy, how he made so many bad decisions. I don't mean in terms of the sexual activity, but in terms of, of the judgment that, that he portrayed during this whole period. Yeah, it's, it's appallingly bad, although I've encountered this um, in many of my other books as well. But as, as Rachel pointed out, it's another example where in many ways uh, the cover-up here was worse than, worse than the crime. I'm not, I don't, I mean, in terms of the outcome, I mean, the, the, the behavior was very bad, but his efforts to cover that up, to buy off the silence of one of his potential accusers, which was the determining factor in getting rid of him, shows incredibly bad judgment. And yet these are people who never get questioned. You know, you see in the book, they're surrounded by these enablers. 
No one ever contradicts them. Everybody is there to make them feel better. I mean, he he had someone on the staff who, if he was traveling to Paris, would go around to restaurants before he got there with a picture of him to make sure that they knew who was coming, what he looked like, so they would fawn over him when he arrived. And that's just one small example. And it's no wonder to me that when people are, are surrounded by an echo chamber of people who tell them only what they want to hear, they're going to be prone to bad judgments when unusual and dangerous situations like this uh, take root. It's interesting because you look at some of the other people that you have written about in the past. Some are driven by ego, some are driven by money, some are driven by their sexual appetites. But what's remarkable here is how all of these factors have come into play. Yes. And again, you know, why didn't Leslie Investor retire gracefully when he could have? It's There is a, a, a sense of entitlement at those levels that the the combination of the money, uh, the power, and then the recognition that comes with that. You know, the, the best table anywhere you want to go, anybody who will answer your phone calls. That, that For some people particularly, that's incredibly difficult to give up. It's not true just at CBS. We're seeing it all over the place lately, you know, recently at Disney. And, you know, you've got problems at, you know, Starbucks and, um, you know, Salesforce. I mean, the the... The powerful executive who can't seem to give up that power and prestige uh, is an increasingly common phenomenon. And Rachel, finally, talk about what happened to the two women that that took over Redstone's life, Sidney Holland and, and Manuela Herzer. Well, I, I I'd like to joke that this book is a mix, is a King Lear meets Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> um, but these women, you know, these women moved into the mansion with him. Uh, got very close to taking over his empire, and on a serious note, uh, isolated from his family and committed what 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 was arguably elder abuse against him. And ultimately, it, it, as we detail in our book, it's it's a, it's a really crazy story that I I, I don't want to spoil all of it. But but basically, one of their sex lives essentially is what what ultimately got one of them kicked out of the mansion, and then the second one kicked out of the mansion. Uh, and allowed Sherry to to re-enter her father's life and and really take care of him, even after his years of abuse toward her. So you know, this as Jim said, it's really this this father daughter story is really remarkable, and it's also very much about you know how somebody might continue to love a parent even after suffering so much so much abuse. And, you know, they did make off with over 150 million dollars, but I I occasionally find myself wondering. Well, did they really earn that money? I, you know, I don't know. I, I will. We have to leave it to readers to judge. James B. Stewart, Rachel Abrams. The book is unscripted: the epic battle for a media empire and the Redstone family legacy. James, Rachel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for Pleasure. having us. Thank you.